uh, July 3rd and 5th because they're closed the 4th. So what's that? 6th and 8th. Sorry about that. 6th and 8th, uh, July 6th and July 8th. So it's a good week to kind of get oriented if you want to try it and uh, see if it's for you. We'd love to have you uh, July 6th through 8th. If you're interested, please talk to Bill. Bill is the coordinator for this, and uh, he can get your information and send you reminders. Um, again, it's very helpful if we can uh, get a couple more volunteers, and it just makes it easier on everyone. Uh, we're going to do a call to worship. This is why it's important, but is it just to fill our heads? Is this just to fill our heads with knowledge? Is there any role for emotions in this and feelings in this? And I say, yes, there is. And I was brought up in the church where we're in, in just my family in the South. We don't try to do, show much emotions, you know, or anything. We're, you know, people kind of accuse us of being toothpaste. We're very hospitable, very hospitable, but, you know, we'll talk about you behind your back, I guess. Uh, but I was told that, that emotions are, um, are not that important. Or if you have them, you need to be skeptical of them and really don't pay any attention to them. I, have, I disagree with that today. I think emotions are super important. If we're really honest with ourselves, our emotions are what trigger our decisions. We may put up pros and cons on a page, but when it comes down to it, many times it's the emotion that triggers what we decide. But it is based on truth. And I would argue that the truth of the Scriptures is what provokes the strongest emotions. It is the truth of Scripture that provokes emotions in us and provokes strong emotions in us. It's not just to fill our head, but this is the final arbiter of truth. The psalmist says that, that, that how sweet your words are to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. That sounds kind of like an emotional response to me to the scriptures. And I think that's part of it. So, we want to jump into the scriptures. Sue showed me this video yesterday, and I thought to myself, we were talking about it. I said, that's kind of sometimes how I feel when I want to jump into the scriptures. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing, and I get in, and I, and I, I want to jump in, and, and I'll come out, you know, heads up, straight up, and everything. And then I saw this, I go, well, that's really how I feel a lot of times when I jump into the scripture. I, I may have mentioned before, I'm listening through the Bible these days on, a, on an app, and I'm really liking it, really enjoying it. And I'm coming to the end of Exodus. It, they pair an Old Testament and New Testament passage. And I'm coming to the end of Exodus. And we're headed into uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And frankly, I'm dreading it. Uh, but that's how I feel sometimes when I jump into the Scripture. It's like, you know, I, I, I know what Leviticus and Numbers are about. And, yeah, okay, I'll see if I can get through this. So anyway, I came across these this uh, video here.
<laughs> now, if, in my opinion, if frogs know one thing, they know jumping, right? They know how to jump. But evidently, these frogs don't know. They're really bad at jumping. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, yeah, I can kind of understand how that works. You kind of jump in, and you think you're going to, you know, if I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know how this works, you know? But sometimes you jump in, and I end up landing on my head or landing on my back or belly flopping instead of jumping the way and landing on my feet and getting on with life. But that's how it feels sometimes in getting on the Bible. So when does the Bible not work? When does it not work for us? There, there's several reasons why it doesn't work. I just saw a statistic this week that said that uh, 79% of the Americans own a Bible, have a Bible in their home. It's only read regularly by 9%. Why? Why is that? And I really think it's because we're like this frog. We think we know what we're doing, and we jump in, and we end up belly flopping, and we don't really know. And I just want to mention a few reasons why the Bible doesn't work. First is the people use it as a fortune cookie. They think that, that I can go to the Bible a service and it's going to tell me what to do with a particular problem or a situation. It's going to give me a formula. I need to raise my family. How do I raise my family? Okay, I'm going to find this formula to raise the perfect kid. Uh, I'm going to find this formula to find the perfect wife to make my marriage this incredibly dynamic experience. And so we think it as this fortune cookie to solve a problem, a specific problem, a particular problem, or it just looks for some formula like that. Um, I, uh, when I was in college... There were these two couples that we were in. It was one, one couple, two, two people in our Christian group. And this was, the, this was the mushiest couple I've ever seen. You know, it's one of those couples that are sitting in Bible study and they can't keep their hands off each other. And they, they kind of talk baby talk to each other. And it, I mean, really, really mushy. And, um, and one night I'm in my dorm room and I knock on the door and open there and there's Bill and Loretta. And they go, we have something to tell you. Can we come in? You know, and I go, oh. Yeah, sure, come on in. So they sort of oozed into my room, you know, <laughs> and, and, and sat on the bed. And I said, well, what's that? What's up? And she goes, we're getting married. I go, oh, great, wonderful, wonderful. When, when did you become engaged? Just about 30 minutes ago. I go, really, really? How, how, did, how did that happen? She goes, well, we were reading the Bible together. And she says, we opened the Bible and we came to this verse. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And they took that as God's message for them to get married. Now, we know that Augustine did that, you know, and I think God can do that. He brings verses to my mind sometime when I'm facing a situation and he'll remember, he'll remind me of something and it may not have anything to do specifically, but it'll change my mind. But in this case, it's like looking for a fortune cookie. What Paul is talking about here is the wall that's broken down between Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about the one body of the church. But they took it as God telling them to get married. Now, it may have been God's will. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if we use this as a practice, this is the wrong way to use it. Because you will be disappointed. You know, this is not how we normally use the Bible. We use it as a fortune cookie to open it up and see what God wants to tell me and see what God wants to show me and take it out of context, and we kind of can get into trouble. So it doesn't always work like that. An overconfidence in our intelligence, in our own intelligence. We think that because I study the Bible or because I, I'm so smart that I really know what's going on, and, and it's, it's, it's my intelligence that I end up depending on. And we know that the Pharisees got into a lot of trouble because of this. 
They were very disciplined in the scripture. They knew a lot of the scriptures. They were very smart people, but not smart enough. And we start relying on our own intelligence and our own discipline. Uh, we, have a mission, we had a missionary colleague who was very, very brilliant, admittedly, very brilliant. And he, and he would almost begin every discussion on field council about doctrine or about practice or whatever. He almost, it almost became a broken record, and we all joked about it, where he'd always begin the conversation with, well, you know I spend five hours a day studying the Bible. You know, it's like, well, good for you. And, um, and he ended up leading a split of our mission board. So we rely too much on our own intelligence, and it doesn't work. And so we do that, and the Bible can become dry and dusty and unsatisfying. And there's all, I'm all for using our brains when studying the Bible, but it has to be, it has to be matched with meditation. It has to be mixed with sitting with the Bible Connie read um, the first psalm where he says that person is stable. He is guided. He is is given courage by meditating on the scriptures, bathing in them, sitting with them, not just trying to get knowledge. An overconfidence in our own tradition. We may come from a tradition that has uh, different practices and different rules and regulations, and we think "This this is the way you're supposed to interpret it. This is the way you're supposed to understand it, and we end up relying on that. But we also know how that turned out when Jesus confronted Pharisees and he says, you've been, you're void of the word of God. These are the people who knew the word of God backwards and forwards. And he says, you're void of the word of God because you value tradition over scripture, over the heart of God. We have too much confidence in our own tradition and we have an overconfidence in our ability to apply it. I wish life was black and white, but it's not. It's gray. And we think we know the scriptures and so we'll apply it in a certain way and we just think that's it. That's the way we can apply it. Take David, for example. The Bible says that the penalty for murder is death. The penalty for adultery is death. David did both of those things. But when Nathan spoke to him, spoke the word of God to him as a prophet, he didn't punish him with those things immediately. He was listening to the Holy Spirit about how to apply it. And all these things, there's nothing wrong with themselves of all these things, but we have to realize that the Holy Spirit has a role here. The Holy Spirit has a role in our, in our ability to apply it, the ability to study it. Paul said that my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. I may have a clear conscience, but there may be a lot of things in my life that I'm not aware of, he says. And we all can agree with that, of course, that we forget what the Bible is all about. It's about a life transformation. It's about a whole life discipleship, not just filling our head with knowledge, not just telling people what they ought to do, that it's a whole process of change. The problem with all of these is that someone else is always in charge, either me or someone else in my life. That's the problem, that we move God from being in charge and we put us in charge. We make us the final word. When the word of God can guide and comfort and give us courage and give us peace, we take over and we think that that's right. That's the way we should do it. So when does the Bible work? When does it work? 
it does give us peace of mind because words have power. We know words have power. When I speak to you, when I'm talking to you right now, I am giving you a piece of my mind. When you talk back to me, you're giving me a piece of your mind. And assuming we speak the same language, we are giving each other a piece of our minds, a piece of our emotions, a piece of our souls. And these words are strong. Now, when we visited Paris at my daughter's wedding, all I was hearing was sounds. They were meaningless to me. I have no idea what French says. We were on the subway, and, and they were announcing the next stop, and I'm looking at the map for the next stop, and I'm going, okay, what she said is no way what that says. It did not sound the same. It was just noise. But when we speak the same language, we are giving each other a piece of ourselves, and those are powerful. We all know that we have been taught or we teach our children that phrase, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is such a lie. Playgrounds can turn into a chamber of horrors for children where they're scarred for life with things kids say to them. We know what our parents have said to us for good and bad. Those things take us and they have great power in us and words are powerful. Jesus saw that. He said, it's not what comes out of you. It's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Those are powerful things. Proverbs said the same thing. The book of James says the same thing. And Jesus knew that these words have a spiritual force to them. That he says, my words change you. My words have a, a very specific spiritual force. He says in John chapter 6, 63, he says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Because when he speaks, he is giving part of himself. When he speaks, he is, he is giving us a piece of his mind and a piece of his heart. He also says in John 15, he says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Words have a spiritual force to them. A strong spiritual force. He is giving us a peace of mind. And we have his word in the Bible. But the Bible is not the only word of God. Okay? We can, we're not doing the Bible any favors by making false claims about the Bible. If we say that that is the only word of God, then we're not agreeing with what the Bible says. Because he says the word settled in the heavens. He said the word is communicated in the nature, not the Bible. He says the word is sown in the soil. And in Acts it says the word multiplied and grew. But the Bible is unique. It is the written revelation of God. It is a wide story, wide-span story of how God and reality relate to one another, of how the story of God and the fallen race and how he is redeeming us. There is, I believe all truth is God's truth. I believe calculus is truth. It is God's word. Now, God's, now calculus is not going to tell me how to have a relationship with God. 
He's not going to tell me, calculus is not going to tell me how my sins are forgiven. But it's still true. And it is still word. And it's word spoken by God. But the Bible is unique in that it is the written, infallible word of God. And it alone is the basis for our redemption and our reality and our relationship with God. God says, and we believe. So when the Bible does work, when we read it with our head, we have to read it intellectually. We have to understand what it says. We have to understand what God meant when he inspired it. We have to understand what the author was trying to get at when he wrote it. So we read it with our head. We read it with, with in, in our intelligence. And if you, I, I think because we are separated for 2,000 years and separated by language, I think we need tools to do that. Uh, I would recommend Gordon Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It was written years ago. They've revised it. It's excellent. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I would recommend the commentary series by University Press called The Bible Speaks Today. Those are very helpful tools to help us along this way. And it is important to understand. It is important to understand because it helps us read it with the heart. It strengthens our ability to receive God's word into our heart. Knowing what it says helps us read it with our heart. And that is important. Rembrandt painted two paintings of Simeon's prayer over the baby Jesus. This one is called uh, Simeon in the Temple. It's beautiful, bright, big. At the end of his life, he painted this when he was a young man. At the end of his life, he painted Simeon's prayer, which is very different. And I really think this is a great illustration of how Rembrandt began to read the scriptures with his heart. As a brash, proud, arrogant young man, he painted this painting with this glory and light and fine lines. And then as an old man, the lines are fuzzier. The lines are humbler. A lot of people think that the old man Simeon is actually a self-portrait. That that's him now. I think this is a picture of Rembrandt reading the story with his head when he's young and reading it with his heart when he's old. And sometimes that just comes with experience. We read it with our heart so the Holy Spirit can work on us. And finally, we read it through the lens of Christ, just as Jesus did. Just as Jesus explained the road to the disciples in Emmaus, we read it through the lens of Christ. We see it all through him. That is how we read it. We all read to come to the scripture with our glasses on, even my readers. We all come with our own glasses, whether they're Latin glasses or, or African-American glasses. We all come with it. And we used to have these arguments in the, on, in the mission field, whether we do Latin theology or biblical theology, and people would say, there's only biblical theology. Well, that's all fine and good, but it's also a fairy tale. There's no such thing as an objective reading of the scripture. We all come up with it, come to it with our baggage. We all come to it with our own glasses on. Another way of looking at it is that we come to the Bible by looking at the rearview mirror of where we've come from. And we see it from the rearview mirror. They say white evangelicals 
read the Bible, especially older evangelicals, read the Bible, looking in the rearview mirror, and they see the 1950s in America. And it's nice and clean and leave it to beaver, you know, that kind of thing. At least that's the, the picture we get. He said African Americans, they come to the Bible, evangelicals, believe a lot of the same things we do, and they look in their rearview mirror and they see Jim Crow. Amen. And they see slavery. And they see segregation. They see GI soldiers not taking, being, being able to take advantage of the GI Bill like their white soldiers did because banks wouldn't lend to them. That's what they see. And we need that perspective. We need both perspectives. Amen. And they read it, we, we need to read it through the lens of Christ. And when we lead it through the lens of Christ, he dismantles some of those prejudices that we have. He dismantles that idea that, that the Levitical priesthood, the hierarchy of the Levitical priesthood is what we should do today in our churches. He dismantles all that. He dismantles nationalism. He dismantles racism and sexism. He dismantles the attitudes that subjugate women before, below, below men. He dismantles all of that. Amen. Look for yourself in the Gospels. We read it through the lens of Christ. And I may be rattling some cages this morning, but what good is the Gospel it's not, if it doesn't rattle our cages? Amen. He wants to change us. And so we read it through the lens of Christ. We read the New Testament through the Gospels. We read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. And it's, in, it's incredibly freeing and it's exciting. And this happened to me, before I was even thinking about this, this is the reason I included this point, because it happened to me this week. Like I said, I'm, re I'm listening to the Scriptures these days instead of reading them in the morning. And it's, it's pairing the Old and the New Testament. And I was listening to the, the Old Testament in, uh, um, in Exodus chapter 19. He was reading this. And he says, the Lord descended on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people. They do not force their way through sea to see the Lord up the mountain and many of them will perish. Even if priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up to you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through up to come to the mountain to see the Lord because I will break out against them. And I'm hearing that going, golly, that's really, ugh. you know, that's kind of scary. You know, God was being pretty, pretty mean there, it seems like. You know, he's, he doesn't want anybody near him. You know, he doesn't want anybody on the top, on the top of the mountain. And then right after that, the voice goes to Matthew and the crucifixion story. The crucifixion story, of, uh, they, and they describe putting the, thorn of, the, the crown of thorns on his head and nailing him to the cross and putting the cross up and then his death as he cries out, why God have you forsaken me? And I thought, how do we put those two together? And then it just hit me. That God on Sinai is the same God nailed to a cross. And it dawned on me, that any time human beings try to reach the top of Sinai, it's disastrous. When we try to get to God ourselves, whether it's Adam or whether it's the Tower of Babel or whether it's the Jews in the desert to try to get to the top of Mount Sinai, it means disaster for us. It means pride and arrogance. 
And the way that God wants to be with us is He comes to us. He submitted to the evil of human beings. He submitted to our sin to take it away. And that was an incredible moment. And I, I'm having trouble verbalizing that experience that morning. But it was incredible to see, okay, this God that was scary here is the same God who nailed himself to the, got nailed to the cross, who submitted to human beings. It always goes in one direction. God to us. God to us. It always goes that way. John says, we love because he first loved us. It goes in one direction. So the proper outcome, I'm running short of time here. Sorry about going a little bit over. But the proper outcome is agape love. The new community in and through love that Jesus inaugurated, that Jesus began. The proper outcome is growth in the love. And we ought to give it the 1 Corinthians 13 test. I think I put it up here on the screen, actually. The 1 Corinthians 13 test. If I had the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. You can learn that Bible backwards and forwards. You can recite verses, you know, at the drop of a hat. You can be so sophisticated theologically that, that nobody is able to grasp your thoughts. But if you don't have love, you got nothing. This is what the Bible is for. This is what it's for, that we grow in the power of supernatural love. And the second outcome is life with God. That's the purpose, that we have this life with God. That is what the whole story is about, of God with us, the Emmanuel principle, God with us. It's almost redundant in the Bible, from Abraham to Moses to David to Daniel to Jeremiah to Haggai to Amos, Zechariah to Mary, and then Peter and James and John and Epaphrodites and Phoebe and Lydia. It's just the whole, the whole gamut from Genesis to Revelation is about God being with us. The proper outcome of studying the Bible is the supernatural power of love. Love of God and love of all people. Love of God and love of all people. That is the natural, the proper outcome of studying the scriptures. Connie read from Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want to repeat this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incompar incomparably great power for us who believe. The proper outcome of studying the Bible is to grow in theology. No. It is the growth of supernatural power of love, the love of God and the love of all people. That's why the scriptures are so important. In a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about praying the scripture. But for now, just want to leave it with the study that this is the proper outcome. John Wesley was an Anglican priest, and I've told this story before. He was an Anglican priest back in the day. 
depressed, despairing. He had just gotten back from a disastrous mission, a mission attempt as a missionary in the American colony of Georgia. And he came back despaired. He went to a Moravian Bible study and he heard uh, Luther's commentary read on, read on uh, Romans. And he sat there in typical British, in typical understated British. He says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And it changed everything. And he goes on to say, Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God and let me be a man of a single book. And God answered his prayer. He ended up riding over 250,000 miles on a horse, giving over 40,000 sermons. Most people, separ- uh, most people say that the, the Methodist movement in England was what saved England from the revolution that they had in France. The movement swept across the American colonies because John Wesley prayed, make me a man of a single book. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the inspiration that they give. We thank you for the guidance they give. We thank you for the care and the comfort and the challenges. Father, we want to be a people of a book of a book that proclaims your glory, your authority, your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.